Alright, if you have a Bible and want to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, I'd encourage you to do that. Luke chapter 6. We're going to conclude our study of the Sermon on the Plain this morning. Uh, that's Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 49. As it, uh, Luke mentioned in verse 18, a great crowd of Jesus' disciples and a great multitude of people had come from all over the region to this unidentified level place to hear Jesus teach and to seek out his healing. As we know, by this point, Jesus had become, if nothing else, a popular figure who uh, was known for his teaching and also for his miraculous work, his healing works. Jesus, we know, taught the Old Testament scriptures. He applied those scriptures to himself. He applied them to his ministry, gave understanding, gave, gave background, gave uh, a sense of uh, understanding as to what he was doing and why he was doing it. He taught the truth with, with clarity. He taught with wisdom. He taught with conviction. He taught with boldness. He taught with authority. If Jesus were here today, he would be the most uh, amazing speaker that any, any person had ever, would, had ever been on the earth. And he was just so amazing with his words. He was such a, a great teacher. So great was he that people were compelled to come from all over just to hear, his, just to hear him teach. In verse 18, Luke mentions, in fact, he mentions it first before the miracles, that people came primarily, first of all, to hear Jesus teach. They came to hear him teach the word of God and to unfold the scriptures and to explain what it is that he was doing, why he had come, and what his ministry was all about. Jesus also performed miraculous works of healing. Up to this point in the gospel, Luke has already recorded Jesus casting out a demon, subduing a life-threatening fever, cleansing a leper, raising a paralytic, and restoring a man's withered hand. And in addition to those five or six specific moments of healing, Luke records four general statements of Jesus' healing power, how he was doing this. He was doing this healing work to masses of people, to many different kinds of people. In fact, people were gathering and coming to him in order to be healed. They came to him purposely for his healing. So Jesus, by his teaching and by his healing, is fulfilling his messianic calling. This is what he had come to do. He came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and to manifest his divine power to redeem those who were broken by sin's curse and power. He came to redeem and to restore. Now, such a man and such a ministry demands a response. What will people do with this Jesus? If he is indeed the Messiah as he has demonstrated through his teachings and his miracles, then he demands more than a casual response. He demands more than curiosity. He demands more than personal self-interest. He demands more than a superficial confession of faith. He demands more than a half-hearted discipleship. Now Luke spends the first third of his gospel really focusing on the identity of Jesus. That's the primary, the three sections of Luke. The first section he is unfolding, he is manifesting, he is, he is not just revealing, but he's making the case that Jesus is the Messiah. Who is this Jesus? 
He is the one whom God has come, whom God has sent to save and to redeem. And, and Luke is again revealing the scene after scene, in teaching after teaching, in miracle after miracle, in testimony after testimony. And so that reality, that reality that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, demands a full-throated profession and a wholehearted obedience. And that's the challenge that Jesus poses to his hearers. Especially to his disciples. Again, those who had gathered around Jesus for this teaching were primarily the disciples. There was a great group of disciples. There was also a large crowd. But Jesus is teaching primarily to his disciples, especially here at the end of the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus has already in the first, I don't know, 20 verses, laid out his expectations for his disciples. He has exhorted them to radical love. He has exhorted them to love even their enemies. This is a love that they, that they display is a love of divine mercy. This is a love that does not judge or condemn, but that gives and forgives. This is what disciples would do. Verses 27 through 38 are, are commands, exhortations that disciples of Jesus will do. Disciples who receive Jesus as Lord and Messiah must do what he commands. It's not negotiable. It's not negotiable. The question is, Jesus has been very clear to lay out what he expects. The question is, will disciples obey? And the nature of their discipleship depends on their reaction, their response to Jesus' commands. And so Jesus challenges them here to consider how they will respond. He challenges them to consider whom, to whom they will listen he challenges to them to evaluate their own hearts and to examine the, the fruit of their lives. And ultimately, he calls them to make the good and right choice. Let's look at the passage. We're going to focus this morning on verses 39 to 49. As I said, we're going to finish out, close out, not only chapter 6, but this extended teaching of the Sermon on the Plain. Luke 6, beginning in verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell and the ruin of that house was great. We could boil down this entire passage really to one 
point. I think Jesus is making one central point in verses 39 to 49. And that's this. Heed my teaching. Heed my teaching. Hear my commands and do them. The true and faithful disciple will be the one who hears Jesus and obeys him. And I think the main verse in this section of 11 verses is verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? We cannot call Jesus Lord and not obey him. Those two things are a contradiction. For Jesus to be Lord, he must be master. He must be authority. He must be the governing principle, the governing person of your life. And again, Jesus here is clearly speaking to those disciples who had professed him to be Lord. Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord? And we understand that to be what a disciple says to Jesus. Lord, you are Lord. And yet for some, this profession was only that. It was only a profession. We know throughout the Gospels that there are places where some disciples, disciples, identifies them as disciples, turned away from him. The, his teaching was too hard. They could not obey what he was telling them. And so what they were proclaiming was just simply a profession. There was no obedience. There was no evidence that he was truly Lord. To be a disciple of Jesus means not just acknowledging him as Lord, but doing what he commands. And so Jesus elaborates on this point by using five different illustrations. The first three of those illustrations in verses 39 and 42 really are kind of clustered together as a, as a singular focus, and we'll look at those kind of as one point. But, but I'm just going to break the sermon down for you into three points. I'll just go ahead and give this to you up front. First, hear and follow. Hear and follow. Number two, heart and fruit. Number three, house and foundation. I promise you I was not trying to be clever with H's and F's. This is the way it turned out. Heart and follow, heart, sorry, hear and follow, heart and fruit, house and foundation. So let's kind of think about those uh, individually. First, hear and follow. If you will be, if we will be true and faithful disciples of Jesus, we must hear and follow him. In fact, we can only do what Jesus says. We can only live out the kingdom ethic of love and mercy when we are following Jesus. And Jesus makes that point, I think, in verses 39 to 42. In fact, as we see the connection, one of the big, pro I'll just kind of go off scripture for a second. One of the big problems in interpreting this passage of scripture is seeing the connection of verse 39 to verse 38. There seems to be some sort of a disconnect there. But the word also is a, is a connecting word. I don't think Jesus is transitioning from one subject to the next. I think he is connecting deliberately what he says in verse 39 back to verse 38. I think he's saying that the next three illustrations bear out what he has just said, in, especially in verses 37 and 38. I think he's making an application of the previous section. Our judging or not judging, our condemning or not condemning, our forgiving or not forgiving, our giving or not giving, seems to depend, not just seems, must depend on who we follow. We can only do the things that Jesus specifies. And again, just take the near context, verse 37 to 38, but it does extend to the whole sermon. We can only do these things unless we are hearing and following Jesus. So all three illustrations emphasize the necessity of following the right person. In the first illustration, Jesus asks two rhetorical questions. Verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? 
Will they not both fall into a pit? Now in the Greek language, the first question expects a no answer. A blind man cannot lead another blind man. Can you imagine what that would look like? The first blind man has no sense of where he's going, and the second blind man can't even really follow the first blind man, right? A blind man cannot lead another blind man. A blind man has no sight or direction. He cannot see where he is going. He cannot observe where he walks. So a blind man then cannot be dependent upon another blind man to lead him. The second question, the second rhetorical question, will they not both fall into a pit, expects a yes answer. If a blind man leads a blind man, then they will both definitely fall into a pit. And of course, that's a dangerous proposition. Now the word pit there, some English translations use the word ditch. That, that may not be the best translation. I can remember growing up that we had various ditches or canals near where we lived. And, and they, were, they were deep, but it wasn't, it wasn't life-threatening. It wasn't really dangerous. In fact, sometimes we would oftentimes go down to play in the ditch. It wasn't really a good thing, but we would, we would do it. The word pit here really means a, a deep pit, a, a mammoth hole from which a man or person cannot be rescued. In fact, the Bible uses the word pit as a metaphor for, for imprisonment or detainment, as in the case of Joseph in Genesis 37 and 41. It can be used as a metaphor for personal destruction. For example, in the Proverbs, Proverbs 22, 14, Proverbs 23, 27, Proverbs 28, 10, that when we are not following God's way, if we're not walking in the way of wisdom, that we will fall into this pit of personal destruction. But most frequently, the pit is used as a metaphor for death. In fact, some translations will render it as the grave, a place from which we can never be rescued. So the blind leader then is escorting his blind follower on a death march. They are walking unawares into their own demise. Of course, Jesus is using the metaphor to reflect the peril of spiritually blind people following spiritually blind leaders. And he may have specifically in mind the scribes and the Pharisees, whom he calls blind guides in Matthew 15, 14, and Matthew 23, verses 16 to 24. In fact, several different places in that chapter, Matthew 23, he refers to the Pharisees and the scribes as blind. But the blind leaders here could apply more generally to, to any spiritually blind leaders who do not yield to Jesus as Lord and Messiah. In fact, any leader apart from Jesus or one who is fully yielded to Jesus, is a blind guide. And Jesus is implying that if we fail to heed and follow him, that we ourselves are blind. If we fail to heed and follow him, we will follow other blind guides calling for our attention. We'll listen to false teachers. We'll listen to secular leaders. We'll listen to worldly influences. We'll even follow maybe even world religions, other, other religions. And when we do, when we follow these blind leaders... We follow them into spiritual peril with the danger of never being rescued. If we follow the blind man, we then also show ourselves to be blind and we walk into the pit of foolishness. In fact, Jesus says here, I think the, the connection is that when we follow blind leaders, we'll not be able to do the very things he mentioned in verses 37 and 38, that we will choose wrongly, that we will judge and condemn, we'll not give or forgive. The blind guide will lead the blind disciple into error and wickedness, into the pit of disobedience and destruction. So Jesus, as he is making this point rhetorically, exhorts his disciples. He calls on them to look to him. He is the, the, the only leader, the only guide with true and clear vision. 
He alone can truthfully and faithfully lay out God's expectations for us and then lead us to faithful obedience. In Psalm 146, verse 8, we read that the, that the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus is the one whom God has sent to open our eyes and to lead us to walk into all truth. In Isaiah 42, verse 16, the prophet writes, speaking on behalf of the Messiah, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. Isn't it glad to, aren't you glad to have a leader of clear vision? One who will lead you well, who will never lead you into darkness, who will turn the darkness into light. If we follow this guide of clear vision, if we follow Jesus, then we show ourselves then to also have clear vision and we will walk on the narrow path. We'll walk the path of wisdom and we will choose rightly. We'll do the things that Jesus commands in verse 37. We'll not judge. We'll not condemn. We'll forgive and we will give. And so we must then hear and follow Jesus. In the second illustration in verse 40, Jesus makes contrasting statements about the disciple-student, or the, excuse me, the, the master-disciple relationship. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Of course, we know the word disciple just simply means a learner or a student. In ancient Jewish culture, a disciple would sort of apprentice himself out to a rabbi or to a teacher, and, and he would learn from that rabbi. He would learn all of his wisdom and all of his scriptural knowledge. And there was a very formalized education in some ways. There weren't really many books to learn from. There were the scriptures, but there weren't really many books to learn from. There, you couldn't go to an online class, right? You had to learn from this rabbi. And everything this rabbi taught you, you would ingest and you would consume and you would internalize. And you would then become like him in the knowledge that you possessed. There, there was also that learning informally. Many times these disciples would, would live with their rabbi. They would, they would go with them to work. They would go with them to the market. If they were doing things like construction around their home, they would help out with those things. And so informally, he's also, and not just simply learning those practical things, but understanding and learning how to apply the wisdom of God, the scriptures of God, the truth of God, to those elements of daily life. And so in the end, after the disciple had apprenticed himself out to his teacher, he would be fully prepared, he would be fully trained, as Jesus says, to imitate his master. And the point that Jesus makes here is that we will become like the teachers to whom we attach ourselves. The disciple will not do anything differently from his teacher. And although that imitation may be imperfect at first, he will strive to imitate his teacher. And eventually, when he is fully trained, he will faithfully imitate that teacher. He'll be like the teacher in every way. The inability of a disciple to imitate the teacher reveals he's not, very good, not a very good disciple, right? If you have someone you're trying to show and who's trying to learn from you and they simply can't master the task or the subject, not a really good disciple. They haven't, they haven't faithfully become a disciple. In fact, they're not really a disciple at all. So Jesus challenges us to choose a good teacher because we will never exceed our teacher. If you follow a poor teacher, you'll never become better than that teacher. If we follow poor teachers, we'll be poor disciples. If we follow an exemplary teacher, we'll be exemplary disciples. In essence, the only really good teacher is Jesus. 
the master teacher, the Lord. Only he can live out perfectly the commands that he is giving to his disciples. In fact, he's already done so. We've seen that through the Gospel of Luke. In fact, if you go back through and look at uh, verses 27 to 38 and read those words through the eyes of Jesus, seeing Jesus in the fulfillment of those commands, go back and read the early chapter. Just read the whole Gospels and see how Jesus is living out the very things that he is teaching. So if Jesus is calling us to this kind of life, who else must we learn from than him? He's the one who's done it. Why would we try to do these very things following a different teacher? We must learn from him. We must hear and follow Jesus, for he alone can lead us to do what he has commanded us to do. In the third illustration of this cluster, Jesus calls for his disciples to examine themselves before they examine others in verses 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So Jesus here is, is pointing out the foolishness of taking out the speck or a, a piece of sawdust from another person's eye, when you have a log or a, a beam, I think of this as like a two-by-four. This is a construction beam that's coming out of your own eye, right? If you can imagine that, that scenario where you've got this, you know, it's kind of like the old the commercial about the, the woman that has a nail in her head. Have you guys seen that? You can YouTube. It's called It's Not About the Nail. This woman has a nail in her head and the husband's trying to tell her. She's describing all of her symptoms and her problems and the husband's trying to say, you've got this nail in your head. And she's like, it's not, not about the nail. Right? It's not about the nail, but it, it is about the nail. If you can imagine the, this beam coming out of your eye, and you're trying to find the sawdust in that person's eye, and this big old beam's coming out of your own eye, and just the inability to see and the, the destruction that you cause by this beam just waving back and forth, it's absurd to be able to try to investigate and to judge what's happening in another person's life until you first have dealt with your own life. So Jesus here is calling us to be mindful of our own obedience before we address the obedience or the lack of obedience in another person's life. We need self-awareness. We need to keep, be attentive to our spiritual lives. In order to be able to examine ourselves, we must look to Jesus, to the clear teaching of Jesus. We, must need, we need to have the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the guidance and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to work in us. So that we can deal with those beam issues, those log issues, before we help our brothers and sisters in their issues. That requires humility. It requires us to admit our failures. It requires us to submit ourselves to Christ for help. Now, we will need to judge the lives of our brothers and sisters. I don't think that, again, we go back and listen to last week's sermon. The judge not does not mean that we don't ever discriminate. We don't ever make judgments. We don't ever... Uh, fail to make decisions, especially in light of church discipline, we are encouraged to help our brothers and sisters in Christ by exposing their sinfulness, by exposing their wandering from the Lord so as to bring a brother back to the narrow way. But what Jesus is saying is before we can get to that point, before we do that and take that on our, as our own responsibility, we first must examine ourselves. We may need to be able to see clearly what's happening in our own lives so that we can then be a spiritual help to those around us. And to be able to examine ourselves, to be able to, to, to be a spiritual help to others, we need to hear and follow Jesus. 
So if we're truly disciples of Jesus, we need to hear and follow him. Are you hearing him? Are you submitting yourself to his word? Are you submitting yourself to his instruction? It's hard to hear Jesus when we are not submitting ourselves to the hearing and the reading and the study of God's word. It's essential. We need the word to help us. But hearing alone, Jesus suggests, is not enough. We must do what he says. Again, in the Old Testament, when God commands Israel to hear, it's not just simply to allow those auditory sound waves to come into their ears and to be done with it. It is to receive that word and then to act on it, to do it. We must do what he says. We must obey his commands. We must submit ourselves to what he instructs. We must follow Jesus in obedience. For following is part of, a necessary part of, an integral part of discipleship. James says in James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word. So maybe this week as you're thinking about this, Think about this particular passage of Scripture. Think about the Sermon on the Plain and think, how can I obey the things that I'm hearing in this passage? That's a good question really to ask ourselves every week. How, especially as I'm preaching the Word, it's oftentimes hard for me to make that application for you. I trust that if I'm teaching the truth and preaching the truth, the Lord will use that to work in your hearts and convict you of those things. But a good question to ask is, Lord, how do you want me to respond to this? How do you want me to obey what you have spoken through your word on this day. All right, so first we had hear and follow. Secondly, we have heart and fruit. And look at verses 43 to 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So the state of our hearts will be reflected in the fruit of our lives. Again, Jesus is using another illustration here, an illustration from agriculture. He points to fruitfulness as an indicator of one's true spiritual condition. The kind of tree that the tree is, its identity, its nature, will be demonstrated in its fruit. And the fruit will tell us what kind of tree the tree really is. And so he begins the first illust this, this illustration first with an analogy of healthy and unhealthy trees. A good tree or a healthy tree does not bear bad fruit. In fact, as a condition of its health, the tree will produce, it will bear edible fruit. And the edible fruit will signify that the tree is a good and healthy tree. So the fruit makes evidence the tree's identity, what kind of tree it really is. And the tree's identity will determine what kind of fruit is produced. And the same is true for a bad or unhealthy tree. A bad tree will produce, will not bear good fruit. It is unhealthy. And so as a, as a condition of its unhealthiness, the tree will produce inedible or corrupt fruit. And the inedible fruit is a sign that the tree is unhealthy. These two things work together. The fruit reveals the tree's identity. And the tree's identity determines the fruit it produces. A few weeks ago, we were visiting my family down in central Florida. And as we were getting ready to leave, uh, this was on Saturday morning, my dad asked me to come help him pick some papayas off of his papaya tree. And so we did so. They were kind of way up there. The tree was pretty tall. And so we got the picker and so forth and began to pull them off. And 
as we went outside, the tree looked perfectly healthy. I mean, it, the, the, the trunk looked fine, the leaves looked fine, the fruit from a distance looked fine. But when we began to pick the fruit off the tree, it was clear that something was wrong because the fruit looked diseased. It was, it was orange in color as papayas are supposed to be, but it had all these, these bumps along it. It was, it was some sort of infected with some sort of a, a parasite or something. And we, but we couldn't, have to, we couldn't have told that. We couldn't have determined that just by looking at the tree itself. We could only determine that by looking at the fruit. It was the corrupted fruit that told us that it was inedible. And the fruit revealed the problem with the tree. So although outward appearances may disguise a tree's health, the tree will show its true character in its fruit. And Jesus makes that analogy very clear in verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The good person does good. And the good that he does shows that the heart is good. The heart is good only when it produces good fruit. And it can only produce good fruit because of the good treasure stored in the heart. And likewise, Jesus says, the evil person out of the, his evil treasure produces evil. So the evil person, the person who does evil, is, is evil at heart. The evil he does reveals the heart from which it produces because there's an evil treasure stored up in that heart. So those who do good, Jesus says here, reveal themselves to be disciples of Jesus because his disciples will do good. They will obey his commands. All of his commands are good and they will always lead to good fruit. So obedience to what Jesus commands is good. They are good works and Jesus exhorts us to do these very things. And those good works that we do will reveal the true state of our hearts. It will, we, we, those good fruits will reveal that our hearts are good, that they store a good treasure within them. Because our hearts are good, because they have a good treasure, they will produce good fruit. And those who do evil, likewise, will reveal themselves not to be disciples of Jesus. Those who are not disciples will not do good. They will do evil. The evil, that evil will be expressed in disobedience to what Jesus commands. When, when a person violates the commands, when they disobey the commands of Jesus, they are showing themselves to be evil. Those are evil works. And they're showing their heart to be evil because they have stored evil treasure within them. And because they have evil hearts, they will do evil. So the fruit reveals the heart and the heart produces the fruit. That's the principle. Now I want to back up just for, for a second though so that we're really clear. The Bible makes clear that apart from Christ, that we all have a heart problem. Apart from Christ, there are, there are no good hearts. There is no one who, who is good. There is no one who stores up good in their hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark 7, 20 to 23, where Jesus kind of elaborates more on what he says here in Luke six forty five. He said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So they come from within, they come from the heart. Man's heart is naturally evil. We were born with a sinful heart. It's the product of Adam's fall. And when we are given the first opportunity... We will act on that sinful heart. We will do sinful things. We will do evil things. So if this is true, then our, in our natural condition, we have evil hearts. 
possessing an evil treasure, and that evil heart expresses itself in the evil fruit that we produce. So before we even get to this point, Jesus is, I think the Bible is teaching us that it's impossible for us to produce good fruit from our natural state. It's impossible to obey the commands that Jesus outlines here in the Sermon on the Plain. That's why I laugh when people tell me, you know, I live my life by the Ten Commandments. Or I live my life by the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to ask them, have you actually read what those things say? Have we read the things here? Have you read the Ten Commandments? Because if you actually read them and are honest with yourself, you'll discover that you have broken every single one of them. Loving your enemies? It's impossible to do without a changed heart. And so that's the, the great blessing of the gospel. And that's why everything that precedes this passage in the gospel of Luke is so important. Because Jesus came as the Messiah on a mission to redeem people. He came to rescue us from sinful hearts. He came to transform our hearts. He came to, to transform them from evil hearts to good hearts. And by Jesus' death and resurrection, he exchanges our naturally wicked hearts with a good and pure heart, a heart that's inclined toward God, a heart that is capable of producing the fruit of good works in keeping with repentance. That's the essence of the new covenant, that before we even get here, there has to be some kind of heart transformation. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, which summarizes the new covenant, says... God there says through the prophet, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, the evil heart, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a new heart, a living heart, a changed heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the true disciples of Jesus are those who have responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. And the evidence that transformation will be observed in the, 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 the evidence of true transformation is observed in the good fruit that is produced. So Jesus is saying here to, to his disciples that, that those who produce good fruit are indeed his disciples because they have been changed. They have responded rightly to the gospel. That shift, that exchange has been made. They have a new heart. They have the good heart. They possess the good treasure. And it leads them to producing good fruit. Our identity is changed when we repent and trust in Christ. And that change in character will bear itself out in the good fruit of obedience to Jesus' instructions. So Jesus provides an opportunity for us to evaluate ourselves. What fruit are you producing? Do you see the evidence of, of obedience to what teaches here, even in the Sermon on the Plain? Do you see the evidence of obedience to what God has, has taught us and instructed us in all of his word? And if the answer is yes, then praise God. That's one way that God gives us assurance. How do we know that we are truly his people? Well, one, one piece, one evidence of assurance is the producing of good fruit. Because again, we cannot produce good fruit unless there's been a change of heart, unless we have a good heart possessing a good treasure. And if the answer is no, if we examine our lives and we see that, man, I don't really see that good fruit coming out of my life. I don't see, I see more of the evil fruit. Then consider that to be God's grace. He does not want you to be self-deceived because piling up a heap of good works will do no good on the day of judgment. Because they're not really good works. We must first repent and trust Christ and his saving work for us.
And then and only then are we truly his disciples and will manifest that in the good fruit. Last point. House and foundation, verses 46 to 49. The house that we build depends upon the foundation upon which we build it. Jesus says in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus is wrapping, I guess like a good preacher, Jesus wraps it up and kind of brings it to a, to a close. I wish I could be like Jesus in that regard. But he closes with a final appeal. And again, he's primarily addressing his disciples, right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? These are those who are following him. They're, they're seeking to learn from him, to imitate him. And yet he warns them against merely confessing him as Lord. It's not sufficient just to call me Lord. And again, don't hear me incorrectly. We believe in sola gratia. We believe in sola fide. We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not adding to the gospel here. But the grace and the faith that saves is never alone. Christ so thoroughly transforms us in salvation that we are a new creature in Christ. And we live out this transformation in a life that reflects that change. Those who proclaim Jesus as Lord but did not obey him reveal that they were not truly his disciples. That he was not their Lord. And so Jesus warns his disciples and he raises their awareness to check their heart, to hear his voice and to follow him. And that last illustration really emphasizes that appeal. There are two choices before Jesus' disciples. They can either build their house on the foundation of solid rock. There was this man who built this house on that firm foundation, on the foundation of the solid rock. And when the storms, when the raging floodwaters caused by violent storms began to crash against it, that house stood firm because it was standing on a solid foundation. Jesus' disciples can build such a house if they will build their house upon his messiahship, upon his lordship, upon the truth that he is the messiah, that he has come to save and to redeem upon the gospel itself. Or they can build their house on, a, on ground without a foundation. And so when the, the, the violent storms began to pour and the, the, the raging floodwaters began to crash against this house, this house fell in upon itself. It was a, uh, the, the word fell and the word ruin there emphasized total catastrophe. It's almost like what you see when we see in the news when a, a tornado has go, gone through an F5 tornado and just decimates a community. And you can't even tell that there were houses that were there. Just nothing but, but two by four and just debris everywhere. That's kind of the, the impression that's given here in the Greek text. That when we build a foundation, when we build a house with no foundation, no solid foundation, we're building upon sand. And the house that we build will be ruined. So Jesus here is calling his disciples to build their lives on the truth of his identity, of the truth of who he is, and the truth of his word. If we build our lives on the never-changing character of God, 
and on the eternal reality of the gospel, then our house will not crash because we will have built on a firm foundation. So building on a firm foundation requires that we hear and follow Jesus. We will persevere all the way to the very end. And when we do, we will find in Christ a great reward. But false disciples who do not hear Jesus' words, who, do not, who simply hear Jesus' words and don't obey, are building their lives without a foundation. And so when the day of judgment comes, their house will not be able to stand, but it will be ruined because they've built their house on things other than Christ and his word. So Jesus calls us to hear and to heed and to follow his words. Let me close from these words from J.C. Ryle. They're rather convicting. I thought that would be a good way to close out what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Plain. What is the foundation on which we ourselves are building? This, after all, is the question that concerns our souls. Are we upon the rock? Or are we upon the sand? We love, perhaps, to hear the gospel. We approve of all its leading doctrines. We assent to all its statements of truth about Christ and the Holy Ghost, about justification and sanctification, about repentance and faith, about conversion and holiness, about the Bible and prayer. But what are we doing? That's his emphasis. What are we doing? What is the daily practical history of our lives in public and in private, in the family and in the world? Can it be said of us that we only hear Christ's sayings, but that we also do them? The hour cometh, and will soon be here when questions like these must be asked and answered, whether we like them or not. The day of sorrow or bereavement, of sickness or death, will make it plain whether we are on the rock or on the sand. Let us remember this at all times and not trifle with our souls. Let us strive so to believe and so to live, so to hear Christ's voice and so to follow him, that when the flood arises and the streams beat over us, our house may stand and not fall. Let's pray. Lord, we are challenged this morning about not simply being disciples or calling ourselves disciples or professing Jesus to be Lord, but to actually be it, to actually do it. We understand, Lord, the necessity of living out the very calling, the very transformation that we have received in Christ and in his gospel. Father, make us true and faithful disciples. Help us to hear, Lord. We need to hear your word. We cannot obey unless we know, unless we hear. And we so are so thankful for this word, this, this truth you have given to us, you have revealed to us, so we might be able to hear and know what you expect from us. But Lord, we also ask you to help us to do it. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that gives us power, that, that gives us the, the energy, the ability to do the things that you've called us to do. And we ask for his help. We ask, Lord, you'd give us opportunities. There are opportunities all around us. Help us to be perceptive. Help, to, help us to be observant to, as to how we can obey the things you've taught us even this morning. We thank you, Lord, for calling us. We thank you for making us disciples. Continue, Lord, to keep us as your disciples all the way to the very end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.